Welcome to the Behold Do Good podcast. We're your hosts, Todd and Ashley Marchant, and this show is about strengthening families through whole being health. At a time when there is so much that can distract, discourage, and disconnect us, our family is on a journey that is led by three core questions. What whole being practices can we implement so every member of our family can have increased capacity, save your life more deeply, and use their gifts to do good? How do we translate and apply what we learn into simple, tiny habits that work amidst the demands of life? And how can we use our increased capacity to better care for others in our family, community, and throughout the world? Each month, our family focuses on one core area of whole being health. We take the biggest challenges we're facing in that area, seek out answers and direction, and do all we can to implement what we learn all the while sharing our journey through this podcast so you can learn and grow alongside us. We joyfully invite you and your family to join us on this whole being health journey. Welcome back to the Behold Do Good podcast. This month, our family is focused on strengthening our physical well-being. Most interviews going forward will be Ashley and I together, focused on addressing some of the most pressing and common challenges we face as families. This interview is the last remaining episode I recorded before Ashley and I decided to make this shift. Aligned with our focus on physical well-being this month, I had the chance to visit with sleep researcher and clinician Dr. Wendy Troxell. Sleep has felt so much like our Achilles heel as parents of young children, and I found some very useful insights from Wendy for our family, so I hope you enjoy this episode. I am privileged to be here today with Dr. Wendy Troxell. And Wendy is just awesome. We've had a chance to work together a time or two before. She has over 15 years of research and clinical experience on sleep and is internationally recognized for her expertise. Amongst many others, she's advised corporate CEOs, the U.S. military, is an advocate for policy and school system change to support better sleep for children and teenagers, and has a wonderful book called Sharing the Covers, which is a guide for couples to improve their sleep. But Wendy, uh, for me personally, I think what I appreciate most about you is the way that you just recognize some of the the strong cultural barriers that are in our society to our sleep health and how well you articulate evidence-based strategies to overcome those cultural barriers. So thanks for joining the show today. Thanks. And thanks so much for saying that. That means a lot to me because that's something I'm really passionate about uh, that I want to conduct good, rigorous science, um, but I want to make sure that that science gets to the people and actually has an impact on real people's lives. And uh, so that's a real focus of my of my research. So I really appreciate you saying that. Oh, of course. And and it's a topic that's of high interest to me. In fact, I was asking my wife last night, like, what questions would you want me to ask, Wendy? Because <laughs> I I swear for us, sleep has always been important and we've recognized how how tight it is to our our not just our physical health, but our mental and emotional health to our ability to show up well within our family. And yeah. so getting higher quality and quantity of sleep seems to always be near the top of our goal list. And so I'm eager, eager to learn more from you today. <laughs> well, good. Well, good. Yeah. I think you're not alone in that sleep is definitely having a moment. I think people are recognizing more and more, uh, thank goodness that sleep is not only vital for your own individual health and well-being but also for your relationship health and really for society's productivity and well-being. There's really large scale social consequences of sleep loss, as well as sort of on the micro level in the family, when we're not sleeping well, there can be really profound consequences. And on the flip side, 
we can all benefit so much from just doing a little bit more to prioritize and optimize our sleep. Yeah, it's been interesting to see some of your the research in your work, the billions of dollars uh, in our economy that are lost due to sleep deprivation. And so let, let's jump into that. And uh, obviously, you know, so this sleep deprivation, it's, it's become much more of a societal norm. It's so pervasive. Uh, you once told our community that at least one in three adults is chronically sleep deprived and that number is even higher for teenagers. So I'd love just for us to start off by talking some about why is sleep so important? <laughs> yeah, that's the million dollar question, I think. You know, when it comes down to it, we still don't know exactly why we sleep. And that's really probably just because, you know, you can't distill something so sort of vital for all aspects of health and functioning down to a single or several uh, sort of reasons, really. But what we do know, uh, you know, quite conclusively is when we don't sleep, it affects every aspect of our health functioning and well-being. So, I mean, I think at its most basic level, sleep is our primary strategy for rest, recovery, and regeneration, whether that be from our, you know, our, our mental well-being, our physical well-being, um, every aspect of our brain and our body and our behavior is affected by how well or not well we sleep. So it's really, it's so difficult to distill it down. And that's why every day, or, or it seems that way, we're coming out with new research showing the cascading effects of sleep loss on, you know, all sorts of bodily systems and even social consequences as well. And it brings up the question then of how much sleep do we really need? You know, and, and I think, I think some of those we hear ranges often and, and as adults, you know, we know most of us that seven to nine hours is the recommended sleep range. And so often we try to justify a lower amount that we can survive on. And so <laughs> may, maybe talk to me some about, as we think about that cascading effect and how, how important sleep is to the functioning of every aspect of our body and, and those consequences when we don't get enough sleep, quote unquote, being in that seven to nine hour range. Mm -hmm. Why that range? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're as a, as a field, we're going to start moving away a little bit from this magic number idea of sleep duration, because truly there is no magic number. What works for one person, what works for me may not necessarily work for you. However, the best available evidence from large-scale epidemiologic studies does show that sort of the best health outcomes, longer survival, uh, less morbidity from chronic health conditions among those, among the population that sleeps in the range of seven to nine hours with excess risk for both morbidity, that is uh, for chronic health conditions or mortality among those who are either sleeping less than that range, so under seven hours, or actually more than that range, nine plus hours. Now, that said, I don't want people to be, you know, running off in fear or despair if they're in either of those extreme categories, because many are. Um, about a third of adults are in the short sleep category, and that's the one we really want to focus on. The issue is that, uh, you know, they're there clearly is a risk of health consequences and mortality associated with short sleep, excessively short sleep. Probably with long sleep, those sleeping nine plus hours, um, in epidemiologic studies, 
that's less clear sort of why that pattern is emerging. It actually is likely due to many people who are naturally sleeping longer, you know, 10, 11 hours may have existing health conditions, which um, relates to increased mortality risk. So mostly as sleep scientists, we focus on that shorter uh, that, that short sleep category. And there is robust evidence showing that people who are chronically short sleepers, not a night here and there, but those who believe that they can just get by with sleeping five, six hours per night, you know, years on end with uh, without any undue consequences, most likely they are simply wrong because there's a great deal of evidence showing that short sleep is associated with um, um, increased risk of a variety of um, negative health conditions. It's also associated with um, inflammatory processes that increase health risk. So there's really good mechanistic evidence showing that short sleepers have elevated health risks. Now that said, back to this idea that there is no magic number for everyone. Clearly there is a range and there are some people, a small percent of the population who are natural short sleepers. That's probably about 2% of the population. So it's a really tiny number. Most people simply do need more sleep to function at their best. And my best sort of recommendation for people, instead of getting so tied up in that, oh, I have to be eight hours or I have to be 8.5 hours per night, to focus on where you are right now and ask yourself some basic questions to find out what your true sleep need is. Questions like, do I wake up feeling refreshed and relatively energized? Maybe not first thing in the morning, but after you get the body sort of moving and you know nobody feels that great first thing um, upon awakening, but 15, 20 minutes later, do you have energy to get through your day? Um, are you grabbing for coffee or other um, stimulants throughout your day to keep you awake? Are you feeling an afternoon slump where you simply can't get through the afternoon without having to take without taking a nap? Are you sleeping in excessively on the weekends? Those would all be signs that however much sleep you're getting currently is not enough because you're engaging in some compensatory strategies like caffeine use or sleeping in. So I want people to move away from this idea that it's a magic number that everyone must subscribe to, but it's generally within that seven to nine hour range for most, but also tune in to those basic questions of how you're feeling and functioning during your day. Thank you, Wendy, for that perspective. I, I absolutely love this emphasis of let's just focus with where we are today. And one of the reasons why I bring that up is not just in the context of sleep, but I think that's valuable in, in all aspects of life. You know, as we think about just making progress in general, rather than saying, you know, what's the ideal that I, that I think I should be at and where am I at today and how can I jump immediately there? How can I incrementally work toward it? And as we yes, think it's, about it's that, it's so vital for sleep in particular because we really can't change our sleep in you know big leaps. Small incremental change is how we can change our sleep. So if you're currently sleeping six hours, jumping to eight hours tonight is not going to happen. But could you maybe add in fifteen minutes to your sleep window to give you the opportunity to sleep a little longer? It's that kind of small micro step that actually physiologically makes uh, works best when it comes to optimizing your sleep. And it's also you know, more effective because you're more likely to do it rather Absolutely. than these large weeks. 
Yeah. In fact, actually just about a month ago on the show, we, we had Linda Fogg Phillips, who's the head of the Tiny Habits Academy and, and just taught us wonderfully about just that, how important it is to help ourselves feel successful and to break down change into very tiny increments if we want to successfully create change. And so I, I think there's a, a good emphasis there and that pairs well with this idea of improving our quantity and quality of sleep. Now, I know that most people that are listening are, are, are going to be interested uh, most in learning, okay, what, what are the specific tools? What are the things that I can do to help optimize my sleep? But before we get there, I do think there is a little bit of emphasis to help give more of that context around the the benefits we experience as we make this investment, as we prioritize this incremental improvement. And the first I want to emphasize is around our mental health. So could you talk to us for a little bit about what what is the tie, the connection between our sleep and our mental health? Yeah, so there's really a two-way street between sleep and mental health. Uh, and it, the thinking used to be that, you know, well, sleep problems are a symptom of virtually every known mental health condition, whether it be depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, you name it, substance use disorder. Sleep problems t- almost always go along with mental health symptoms. So that's why for a long time, sleep symptoms and sleep problems were sort of pushed aside as, oh, well, they'll just sort of get better as the mental health improves. Well, now there's an abundance of research showing that it's not just that sleep problems track along with poor mental health, but we actually now know very conclusively that sleep problems can actually predict the onset, the development of new mental health conditions, including depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, substance use. Um, And so there's really now this focus on focusing on sleep and making incremental changes in sleep as a strategy to support mental health resilience. And we saw this actually in COVID when sleep problems and mental health problems were quite prevalent. And one of my favorite studies um, that was published during COVID, uh, published in the journal Sleep, um, was um, uh, by a research group, not my own, that looked at sort of um, individuals who had undergone a sleep treatment for insomnia prior to COVID versus a control group that had not. And what they showed was that those who had gone through the sleep treatment, and this was a behavioral one, non-pharmacologic, they actually showed better mental health and and better sleep. So resilience during the major stressor of COVID relative to the condition that had not received sort of these sleep strategies and tools. So it's really a great piece of evidence in conjunction with other evidence that not only do we need to be mindful of protecting our sleep, to avoid the development of mental health problems, but actually there's a great investment in protecting our sleep as a strategy to to boost our resilience when bad things happen, right? Because everyone knows when you're not sleeping well, you know, you know, mountains, you know, like what's the, you know, like even a molehill feels like a mountain, right? It's so hard to cope when you're depleted by lack of sleep. When, you ha- when you're well slept, even when bad things happen, you're able to mount those healthy, effective coping resources and get through the adversity, which is frankly a part of life. It's, you know, and stress is a part of life. We're not going to get rid of it. It's how we manage it. And having sleep as a solid foundation is one of the best tools we can have to support that kind of, um, you know, coping and resilience. I, I- 
my life experience is just a exclamation mark to to what you you just articulated. In fact, actually, there's this quote that I've always loved from Matthew Walker. He says that the best bridge between despair and hope is a good night's sleep. And, and the reason why that has just always stuck with me is ever since I read that, I've noticed it that on the days where I feel most despair, most anxiousness, Mm -hmm. most, I'm having the, the most difficult time coping with the challenges of life. It's often after a poor night's sleep. And once I get a good night's sleep, it's like I wake up and I feel ready to tackle those very challenges that felt completely overwhelming before. And so uh, there's, there's hundred percent. I, my, my life, I I feel the evidence of what you're saying in my own life experiences. And the converse is so true too. I mean, I can tell you times where, you know, if, if, I wasn't sleeping well, or, you know, after um, having children, when you're sleep deprived in the, in the, in the early days, which I know you are probably currently, just your emotions are that much more raw on the surface. And so you're more prone to snap at your partner, to have a meltdown, all these things that if they become chronic can uh, contribute to the development of, uh, of longer term um, mental health problems. So really it's, you know, protecting our sleep is one of the greatest things we can do to support ourselves, knowing that stress to some extent is unavoidable. It's always how we manage it that matters. You know, it's actually interesting. You know, we, we noticed this connection. You mentioned the sleep deprivation associated with having children after our few, our first few kids, it, it was very difficult emotionally on my wife as she was recovering, uh, oh. in those processes as we were sleep deprived. And so we ended up getting to a point where it's like, okay, if we're going to have more kids, which we desired to, we actually need to plan our life in a way that allows us to protect that sleep more. And so I actually, before we had, uh, another child, I even made a shift in my job and there was other motivations that, that were a part of this, but I made a shift where I could be working from home. And I had more flexibility with my time and my schedule. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us to better kind of co-work together how we managed the sleep schedule of, of a new baby and how we could you know, take time to recover in, yeah. in our sleep. And it's made all of the difference in our ability wow. to, to continue to grow our family the way we've desired to. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned my interest in policy. And honestly, you know, I wish that everyone had the gift of making those kinds of choices that can really support the health of the family. And that's where sometimes policy does play a role and things like you know, family leave policies do make a big difference um, in how families adjust and cope to a very challenging time. Sure, it's normal to be somewhat sleep deprived after the birth of a child, but being able to, you know, have resources and to proactively manage and prepare for that sleep deprivation so it doesn't become chronic, you know, I I really wish we could do more to support those options for everyone um, because it's really, uh, it does come down to an equity issue as well. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the work that you're doing to be an advocate for, for those types of changes. And and I hope that those listening can help rally around that. You know, this community is a, a community of people who want to make a difference in their families and their communities in the world. And, and I think this is one of those areas that's, that's worth providing that rallying support. And so as we transition some into talking about optimizing our sleep, I'll just emphasize uh, for the sake of time that we won't 
go as much detail into it, but you talk a lot about the foundation of sleep to other physical health pillars that rather than sleep, just being another pillar of health, a physical health, like eating or moving and exercise that the research and science shows it's, it's a foundation to optimizing those other areas of our physical health. I also love the research for this audience here, this community about how we become more altruistic, more selfless, more compassionate, more empathetic when we have the proper amount of sleep. And so if we are truly wanting to make a difference, if we are wanting to show up as a better partner, as a better parent and, and pursue things we feel called to do, sleep is a really important ingredient to that. So as we think about then optimizing our, our sleep, one of the things you talk about is simply understanding what's going on when we sleep is in and of itself a powerful tool to help us to start to prioritize it more. And I think there's this misconception that I've had and that, that, that we often have that when we go to sleep, our brain shuts off and, mm-hmm. and it's like tur- turning off a light switch until we wake up and it turns back on. But, but it, the reality is it's quite different. So talk to us some about what's going on, you know, while we're sleeping. Yeah. And, you know, in the interest of time, what I want to focus on really is sort of the kind of primary misconceptions about sleep that really impact people's behavior. I'd love to at another time, just totally geek out on the science, um, on uh, like all the stages of sleep and all that. But I think what's most important for um, people to understand First is this idea that sleep is not, you know, sleep onset doesn't occur as just a light switch phenomenon. Um, And it's so that misconception is really pervasive and it does impact our behavior um, in part because, you know, so many people are running around from busy lives, going from work to taking care of family, um, living, leaving little to no time whatsoever to wind down before preparing for bed. And then lo and behold, they jump into bed as if it's a race, um, adrenaline and cortisol pumping, and they lie in bed, turn off the light, um, say, good night, honey, maybe, and or maybe they're on their phone, most likely, and put down the phone, turn off the light, and then expect sleep to come like a light switch. Well, that physiologically is simply not how sleep occurs. Sleep is an active and dynamic state, and it's a physiological, a pretty complicated physiological process that really should be thought of more like a plane slowly descending um, into landing, no sorts of crash landing that doesn't work when it comes to sleep. And the way I think about this too, is that when you think about sleep from an evolutionary perspective, it is a very vulnerable state to be in, right? You know, you're lying down, you're semi-conscious, you're vulnerable to potential threats from the external environment, again, in our ancestral past. Um, our brains are still hardwired to think that way. It's dark, you're lying down, your eyes are closed. And so if the brain is perceiving any sort of sort of perception of threat, um, the brain is, again, hardwired to be vigilant. And vigilance is antithetical to the sleep state. So the brain will work very hard to keep you awake if it's, con- you know, if it's scanning the environment for potential threats. So there's two things about that that's so important. First of all, one of the reasons why, again, we can't just race off to bed and expect a light switch to go off, because that's not how the process of sleep occurs. Our brain needs to feel that the world is safe and secure in order to be able to fall into or descend into that sleep state. And that's why a wind down routine is so important. 
We do it for our children and we forget that it's important for ourselves too. A simple wind down routine, which in involves maybe 30 minutes up to an hour of something that's relaxing, pleasurable, maybe engaging with your spouse, that's going to help um, set your brain and your body up to settle into a good night of sleep. And social environments and social relationships are one of our, as human beings, primary um, facilitators of feeling safe and secure, provided that they're good relationships. Um, if you feel uh, if you feel that you can really trust your partner. So that's why for me and what I encourage in my book is we've lost the art of winding down and the ritual, the rituals that often surround the nighttime, which used to be about connection. It used to be a quiet, dark time where we could connect with our partner, with our family. Instead, so often now, the last thing people see at night is their phone. The first thing they see in the morning is their phone. And there's a real life human being right there next to them that is being neglected that actually is, may provide a much better source of support and comfort and could actually facilitate sleep. The second and final um, just misconception I want to talk about real quick is this idea that when we fall asleep, it's like, again, lights out, nothing else is happening. This misconception also leads people to I think sometimes get overly stressed about, um, oh my gosh, I woke up once or twice a night, um, or they become obsessively you know, focused on their sleep tracker, that if it doesn't show a perfect score of sleep, there's something wrong. Well, first of all, there is no perfect score in sleep. And second of all, it's really important to remember that sleep is a dynamic state. So waking up one, two times in the middle of the night is actually not a problem. It's the inability to fall back to sleep that can become a problem for some people. And if it's happening nightly or several times per night over several months or more, that's when we start looking at this as a possible sleep disorder, um, potentially insomnia, which is the most common sleep disorder. So it's, uh, I think people need to be disabused of the idea, A, that you know you can just jump into bed and it's lights off, you'll fall asleep because that will inevitably lead to failure. And then you might get anxious about it if you're then you know, struggling to fall asleep. Instead, you need to prepare the body and the brain for sleep. And secondly, once you do fall asleep, we need to get over this idea that sleep is like being you know, completely unconscious throughout the night. Some you know, awakenings are normal. It's the ability to fall back to sleep and generally feeling when you wake up that you had deep and refreshing sleep. Again, your perspective and perception is even more important than whatever your sleep tracker might be telling you. Oh, those are so helpful. Bust of some common <laughs> misconceptions. But one of the my favorite things that you just you just shared, and you know, as I've as I've been involved, you know, working with you before, you articulated it with a little, a little bit more of an emphasis than maybe I've heard before. And I just loved how important that sense of connection is social connection actually as a role in our our sleep and it makes me think about how you know we really are one interconnected whole and mm -hmm. as we think about our physical well-being and mental well-being we talked about that connection but the the relational well-being our our emotional well-being our spiritual well-being you know all of these things have an, a connection as a part of you know who we are and so it's interesting to hear that connection between our relationships our sense of connection with another and how that in of itself prepares us to to land the plane into a state of sleep thanks for listening to part one of this interview with dr wendy troxel 
If you found it helpful, I invite you to leave a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. As a new podcast, each review makes a huge impact. Part two of my interview with Wendy will be released on Thursday and goes into greater detail about practical tips to improve your sleep. Also, with the shift Ashley and I have made to lead Be Whole Do Good together with a focus on strengthening families, we could not be more excited about some support options we'll be soon releasing. If you desire to be a more mindful parent, to have your family practice greater compassion for yourselves and each other, and to establish a family culture of continually becoming more whole and doing good, then you won't want to miss what will be released soon. To be kept up to date, simply head on over to BeWholeDoGood.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter at the bottom of our homepage. We are so grateful to be on this journey of whole being health with you. Have a wonderful day.